2: Too Bono. Of course, Bono is saying that metaphorically, but a lot of times it's right here in the physical world. You haven't found what you're looking for. You're searching for something. Now, if you listen to this show, I think you would agree with me that I don't brag about my abilities very often. <laughs> Largely because there isn't there isn't a lot to work with there anyway. But I think I am really good at finding things for other people. And when people, I think my my partner, I think she would confirm this that. On numerous occasions, she can't find her wallet, she can't find her credit card, she can't find her driver's license, and I find it. Um, And there's two ways that I do this. One of them is I ask a lot of questions uh, and gradually sort of crowd out the places it can't possibly be because she has seen it since she went to that place. And then when we narrow the field a little bit, then I search. Most people will say, oh yeah, I looked in my car. (laughs) Yeah, you looked in your car kind of, kind of. Cars are really complicated places. They have all kinds of nooks and crannies. You, You can't, I mean, you have to really look in your car. I have gone out to my partner's car on more than one occasion and come back with the thing that she couldn't possibly find. I'm just telling you that. And now I want to temper this obvious grandiosity of mine with another statement. If it's my thing, I can't can't possibly find it. And I think it's because if it's my thing, I'm not calm about it, right? I I, I probably spend I probably, when I die, will have spent a a year of my life looking for my phone, (laughs) if you just sort of add it all up, but when you lose something that's yours, You're much less calm about it, which means you'll be much less methodical. You'll look under a cushion for two seconds and then storm away. So anyway, this is a whole show about searching. Now, it's not all about that kind of searching. Some of it's about that kind of searching. Some of it's about searching for something that someone else has hidden. And then at the end, we're going to talk to, well, we're going to talk to Walter Wick, who really specializes in creating these visual Um, these visual miniature landscapes for children in which they need to be able to find things. So it's all about searching, but yes, one of the things that's really upsetting, if you lose it, it, is a ring. I actually have a story about that too, which we might get to. But uh, obviously when you lose a ring or something like that, a real valuable piece of jewelry or something like that, it's like you're in a whole other category. And we know that if you lose a ring, it can really Pray on your mind, Cat. This is A1.
0: Sauron needs only this ring to cover all the lands of a second darkness. He is seeking it. Seeking it all. His thought is bent on it. For the ring he yearns above all else to return to the hand of its master.
2: Yes. In fact, you bend all of your thoughts towards finding your ring. And if the ring really yearned to be on the hand of its master, our next guest would have to find something else to do with his time uh, because he is famous for uh, being a ring finder. More, almost more famous than Frodo, but not quite, uh, and uh, and also organizing an incredible army of ring finders, a fellowship of ring finders. Let's put it that way. Chris Turner is the CEO of a global directory of metal detecting specialists called Ring Finders. Chris Turner, well, welcome, uh, and and may I ask, because I know that right, you're traveling around the country right now, meeting uh, members of your army, your fellowship of ring finders. Are you in one of those places right now?
3: I am on the side of the road, Colin. I'm not quite sure where I've been driving most of the day and night. I've been on the road for four months living in my van, so uh, I'll never get lost because I really don't know where I'm going.
2: All right. Well, if you need us to send someone to find you, uh, obviously we can, but it just <laughs> seems, seems like kind of an irony if we do that. So we should talk a little bit about this. Um, this is a thing that you've been... We should say Chris is a former professional soccer player and actor, but you kind of i think it's fair to call this a vocation i feel like you have been called by, by an, an entity unknown to do this thing that you do right now but maybe just start with how it begins it kind of begins in your childhood right
3: it does yes when i was 12 years old i was looking at a field and street magazine of my father's and i saw a metal detector and I asked my father what it was and he said it's a metal detector. I go, what does it do? And he goes, it finds treasure. I go, I want one. He goes, get a job. <laughs> so I got a job at a chicken farm all summer to buy my first metal detector.
2: Well, that sounds very Napoleon Dynamite somehow. Uh, but, um, but yeah, you get your metal detector. Uh, and then it's the 1980s, right around the time I lost my wedding ring. Uh, it's the 1980s. Uh, you're living out in a boat in L.A. and what happens?
3: Well, my soccer career ended uh, in 84, so I picked the metal detector back up again and started detecting on beaches where people were running up and asking for help, and uh, I'd help them find what they lost, and most commonly, it's a wedding band or an engagement ring, and um, people were just ecstatic. They were uh, crying. They were, you know, when I, when I passed it back to them to see how it affected their lives just meant... I had to do something. I kind of caught this pretty quickly to to realize there's a service here. And that's when I created a little company in Vancouver called Finders.
2: So we should, before we get into Finders, I think you would agree, you know, I was even describing my own pathetic little amateur efforts at finding things, but there is a thrill when you find something. I mean, even before some person weeps and says that you have completely rescued their existence, even before that happens, Chris, I feel like there is an endorphin release or something when you find a lost object. I mean, does that ring true for you? 100%. Uh, If you've never experienced it, you you
3: wouldn't really understand how it feels to, to reunite somebody with something so precious and to see how it affects them. It affects me the same way. I might not show it. I have a YouTube channel with hundreds of videos of surprising people, but inside, I'm just as happy as that person I've returned it to.
2: Right. So, let's hear a little bit about what the, uh, of what this sounds like. Uh, these are real taped reactions of people getting their lost rings back from our guest, Chris. Uh, this is a one cat. Oh
0: my God, you found <laughs> it! Can ah! <laughs> I give you a hug? Yeah. yeah. Oh. Thank you're you. You're welcome. Oh, you're my favorite person in the world. Brilliant, this is my box's ring. That is. Flipping amazing. I <laughs> you, so, you sneaky dog. <laughs> <laughs> really? Is that it? That's
2: it! <laughs> so you have a job where you just make people happy all the time. Uh, although. I- <laughs> so this is called ring. It's now called Ringfinders. Uh, you, because of these kinds of scenarios and these uh, expressions of delight, uh, you attracted the uh, um, interest of a, an anonymous angel investor who said, "Just get going with this, right?" So explain how Ringfinders is set up. It has a rather unique business model, if you would even call it a business model.
3: Yeah, most wouldn't. Um through an angel investor, someone I've never met to this day, who saw value in what I was doing in Vancouver, he helped create a global directory where many technicians can list. We have 24 countries, over 600 members, heavy base in the United States, and it's affecting people's lives in such an amazing, beautiful way. And I absolutely love what I'm doing. This is the best thing I've ever done in my life, and I wish I would have been doing this way, way earlier in my life.
2: So, yeah, the the way that this works is, I mean, I think you encourage your detectorists to at least Get gas money and and but people kind of work out their own things and I read that New Yorker piece about uh, a guy who <laughs> clearly was not making any money being a ring finder. He might have been losing money and this is the guy. This is a guy who was so dedicated to this he had to find two rings in one day. On his way to the second ring, he gets in a pretty bad car accident where his car is I think totaled and takes a cab to the place and still finds the ring. Um, but I mean, this isn't something people are doing to make a lot of money, that there's something else happening here, right, Chris?
3: Yeah, there is. I mean, it's it's an interesting footprint I created many years ago. Um, I, I work on a reward basis. I leave it up to people to pay what they can afford and what it's worth to them. And that's it's a sliding scale like no other. And not many people in the world this this day and age work like this. And it's, I believe, a beautiful footprint because I never want to make somebody feel they can't have a second chance. So by leaving it up to them to pay what they can afford, uh, everybody has a chance to find what they've lost. And I've done it for a homemade loaf of banana bread. I've got as much as $2,500 for re- recovery. It's all over the map.
2: So it's some of this stuff is pretty hard to do. Uh, let me just tell you my, my story about this. So uh, right around the time that you were starting your your enterprise, sometime in the 1980s, uh, I was a young adult. I was married. I, I, a whole bunch of us young adults who didn't have much money, we pooled our money, and we rented this kind of ramshackle house by a lake, and we would go there every weekend. And my friend Steve and I developed this game that we would play <laughs> that involves standing about waste, even water, and kind of skipping uh, a rubber ball across the surface tension. And so you'd have to be like Mike Schmidt at 30 base. Just this thing would be zooming at you and you'd try to grab it. But that involved throwing the ball with quite a bit of torque. And I was throwing the ball with quite a bit of torque and my, I, my ring happened to be on that hand. I'm left-handed. And the next thing I know, <laughs> the ring just goes skittering off my finger and plop into the lake, down into the murky muddy. This is not a sandy-bottomed lake. Uh, and it because I didn't know that you existed, I never found that ring. But that's probably not that unusual a story, right?
3: It happens more than you know. They say 4 out of 10 married men in their lifetime in the United States will lose their wedding band. 700 million men, that's over 20 million lost rings. Hmm. Um, that's just men. So, yes, it's, it's very common. The the thing is, if it's a place that's not well hunted, I can still find it.
2: Hmm. All right. Well, we, we maybe we'll talk. But um, some sometimes you have to go into some pretty wild spots to try to find something, right? I mean, sometimes... It, it the things are, are not in a place that's even all that easy to access.
3: Uh, 100%. I mean, I, I just came across America, I went from uh north to south, east to west, and I've talked and met members that are working in fields with cotton with rattlesnakes. Um, I they got their snake boots on. I'm like, are you? serious <laughs> guy that was just in in florida doing a recovery and whitefish went flying past him with two bull sharks on both sides of him, and he got out of the water pretty quickly after he found it um bears cougars uh it's it's got a got a member who's in the uh, a, a, a lake looking for a ring with his buddy with a rifle on a bridge watching out for crocs or gators whatever whatever it is out there in in uh texas yes it's not as simple as it sounds these these searches sometimes uh you know these guys are risking you know their lives it sounds interesting what we do but uh, a lot of times it's not as easy as people think
2: why do you not have a netflix series about you this you got crocs and cottonmouths and things like that or at least you and your guys uh, they, they they've tried calling for years and I, I have a
3: vision on how this could be shot and how it could be told truthfully without sensationalizing, creating or staging drama. That's why I went across America to meet and document uh, my members and what we've been doing, to piece it together, to show a production, this can be done. So um, that's why I took my retirement fund, bought a Mercedes, um, and drove across America, is to put this together and try to show the world because... The more people that know about us, the more chances people have on getting back something so sentimental. And it's not just rings. It's, it's like I had a member just come back from Michigan where he found $36,000 in gold and silver coins that were hidden by a man who forgot where he put it. He also, uh, a couple years prior, found $120,000 in gold cougar ants. These are stories all over the charts. It's not just jewelry. I found a, a backhoe tooth that was 200 pounds <laughs> that shut down a gravel pit. During one of the worst times, it was uh, where they needed to be working. So, you know, we find all kinds of stuff, not just jewelry. And it's, it's amazing what these guys do and the elements they do it in.
2: So um, I want to just bring up one other thing. It does, it does involve a ring because it, it fascinates me. And this is a ring that really you couldn't find. This is a woman who contacted you to find a military ring her father lost. He was at a cemetery freshening up his wife's grave, and he threw, not, not unlike me throwing the ball, he threw an empty flower pot over the side of a hill, and he saw the ring fly off as he, uh, as he threw it. You would think that would be a relatively easy layup you, but it, I should have th- thought of a soccer version of that, but, um, but, but it wasn't, right? It, that was like, a, it was weirdly hard to find.
3: Uh, strangely hard to find, and I couldn't figure it out, so I threw a test ring down there, and I couldn't find that one. <laughs> then I started probing the side of the, uh, the, the the slope, which I had to repel down, because it was pretty, it's up a 45 degree angle, and um, I, I figured out that the whole layer of this slope was probably four feet of um, plastic flower containers, the the pots mm-hmm. that people throw after they take the plants off the graves. So it's a complete false slope that this ring must have just fallen through all the cracks and crevices down to where I can't reach it. I go back every year and take out heaps of plastic thoughts out of there in hopes that I'm going to find this. And thank you. I, I'm going to do that when I get back to Vancouver.
2: <laughs> okay. So, you know, you heard me uh, try, attempting to boast about my own finding abilities. But one thing I think I do share with the RingFinder methodology is it begins with the questions you ask, right? You, if you show up with a metal detector and just look everywhere, you're going to be looking for a really long time, maybe even for people in their own lives. What, what are the kinds of questions that RingFinders ask?
3: You've got to be. You're absolutely right, Colin. You've got to be a good detective. You can't be afraid to ask questions. I talk to so many members to see what questions they ask. We kind of share just to make sure we're asking the right questions a closer. But most people associate a loss by looking at their hand and going, oh, my God, my ring's gone. It's right here. They freeze. They stop. And we come in and search that area. It's not there. And then you start asking the questions. What were you doing before? Were you putting senton lotion on? Do you take your rings off? Did you put it in the pocket? A lot of people put it in their chair, forget, fold the chair and walk away. Put it on the blanket, shake the blanket and forget. Um, you've got to ask the questions. It's not unusual to be told where to look and find it 100 yards away. And if you don't think out of the box on your grid search, and you must methodically grid, north, south, east, west, west. If you do not take it out of the box, so to speak, you can walk away from a smile. So I encourage all the members to take it beyond, far and beyond. you will be surprised where these rings can show up.
2: I'm also thinking some percentage of people who lose these Quote unquote, lose these are people who, in a fit of pique, say, Oh, yeah, Gary, I saw you talking to that woman over there. Here's what I think of your ring, uh, and and throw, <laughs> throw it in some random oh, direction. Boy. Yeah, you oh, take that and run with it, Chris, whatever you want to say about it. That, that, that is such
3: a calming thing. And people don't want to talk about it. I had a lady say, uh, My three year old daughter threw my wedding band or wedding ring out the uh, bedroom window. I get to her house. I start by the window, and she's like, no, Mr. Turner, further back. I'll go a (laughs) couple feet further back. Next thing, I'm in the bushes. Now, I know a three-year-old doesn't have an arm like that. And I just gently break it in and say, you know, a lot of people get mad at their spouses and throw the rings. The most important thing is to get this ring back. Then they open up and say, you know, actually, that's what I, I did. And your next question is, were you drinking? And it's an important question because someone who's had a few drinks throws way different than somebody who's had a whole lot of drinks People who have a whole lot of drinks throw straight down. People that haven't had a lot will, will throw straight out. So there's a big difference in where to look. So we do test throws. We'll put flagging tape on the ring, have them reenact it, and then you add like 30 or 40 yards to it because nobody throws with the power they did when they're mad if they're not. So we have techniques and tricks, and I share it with all my members in an info book. Um, I found John Cryer's ring from Two and a Half Men. He was walking uh, down a pathway in Vancouver, uh, he's filming there. If you know who John Cryer is from, sure. the actor from Two and a Half Men, he pulled his hand out of his pocket, and it was cold and wet, and his ring came off. He didn't realize it until he walked about 50 yards, and he stopped and he started searching with a light, couldn't find it. One little area of strip of grass, the only chance it could have been, and it was there. Uh, it, it should have been, by all means, on the walkway, which is all concrete. He just got lucky it bounced into the grass where nobody could see it. So that was a, a fun search, and... Uh, I was so happy to get that back because we still call it the John Cryer effect. We still get calls from people <laughs> seeing that story.
2: And uh, you know, just to build on that a little bit, you probably also heard me in my little monologue there say, "I'm not as good at finding my own stuff because I'm less calm about it. Uh, like yes. I, I don't know where my phone is. And I'm just really pissed off. Uh, <laughs> and whereas I can find somebody else's phone because all I, like, well, you know, I'm having a lot of fun looking for their phone. It's not my phone. And you're,
3: you're not attached to the story. You're not attached to the the, uh, the disappointment, the sadness. You're there to help and look, and that's where we come in. We're we're not attached to that story. We're we're just attached to looking for it. So we come in with a different set of eyes. I've had people look for five hours in one area with a rented metal detector and find it and not find it. And I could see it. I can actually walk in there and before I go over, they go, oh, here's your ring, and they're like, what? you've been there for five hours. But like you said, you're very smart. People who lose it, they they can't think. They're they're, they're their minds just going crazy with fear, panic, so they don't look at it the same way as we do.
2: Right, and but maybe that's a piece of advice. Uh, I want to sort of end our conversation on maybe a couple of pieces of advice from you. And I suppose sure. one of them would be, if you lose something, to whatever extent possible, maybe one of the first things you do need to do is kind of calm down, take a few slower breaths, and kind of detach yourself a little bit from whatever horror or frustration you're feeling?
3: 100%. The biggest thing is, in a public area, to get reference marks, that's huge because a lot of times people come in and say, uh, you know, the, on the phone, I know exactly where I lost it. I get there. What seemed to be like a 10 by 10 area turns into the size of a soccer field, and they just can't put you in the area. They're like, oh, well, I think it's here. I think it's here. Stop. Mark your location. Get reference. Get a, two get a reference marks where you can get back to that place. If it's in the water, count your steps out of the water to the top of the shoreline so we know exactly how far out it was and then make a reference on the top of the shore this will help us get to to help you uh, but yes if people just relax breathe and i always tell people breathe and um you'd be surprised that you can find it yourself if you just take the time if you can't we have a directory of over 600 members waiting to help
0: you
2: right so and, and that's the last thing I, I want you to just drive home here which is just because you think – the I mean, just because you, the person out there who has lost something, whether it's a ring or something else, just because you think it can't be found because you didn't find it doesn't really mean there's no second chance out there, right? You guys often find stuff that people have kind of given up on for maybe even quite a lot of time.
3: Yeah, what, what kind of scares me is people think to go rent a metal detector or buy one. I've had people buy metal detectors, search for hours, and give up and just – Just for the heck of it, they just call us and say, look, I've searched, it's not there, but you know what? I'm going to pay your gas to come out and have a look. And we find it. And they're like, how? It's like, well, what do you do? It's like, I'm a truck driver. Well, I wouldn't know how to drive a truck. I wouldn't know how to do surgery on somebody. I wouldn't know your job. This is our job that we've got years of experience in, and we know how to do what we do with the equipment we have. So don't give up. If you've looked and you don't think it's there, give us a shot. And I I tell you what, a lot of times what we can do is get people closure. If it's in their backyard, they think it's there. They don't check their house because there's certain it's in the back. <laughs> when I look at them and say, sir, your ring's not back here. Call me when you find it. They're like, what? I go, check your house. Check your car. Check the last places you remember it being in. I get the call like two days later. Oh, my God, Mr. Turner. I'm so embarrassed. You're right. It was under the bed or it was in the washing machine or it was in the dryer. I hear all these places that are found. But I'm happy going and giving them closure because now they can shut that door and look in other places.
2: All right. Somebody out there is listening right now, and they're going to go Google search uh, the RingFinders. Uh, Chris Turner is the CEO of the RingFinders, uh, and we're going to take a little break. Thanks for your time, Chris, uh, and take us out, Kat. We actually have uh, Mr. Higgins from uh, Ted Lasso right here in the studio playing bass to that. All right. So, yes, you know, Chris Turner and his group, they'll find your keys. They'll look for your keys if their keys are that important to you. Uh, But there's a different kind of key seeker. It's actually a term of art within a world of people, a kind of what we say, a demimond of people who specialize in looking for a particular kind of hidden thing, a hidden thing that was devised by a writer who's no longer with us. His name was uh, Byron Price. Uh, he created uh, um, 12 hidden treasures. Uh, and here to talk a little bit more about that and the difficulty of finding these hidden treasures, which turned out to be a lot more hidden than even Byron Price thought they were, uh, James Renner is a journalist and author. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
2: So this is kind of an interesting story, too, because the origin story li- ex- kind of exists in a liminal space between fantasy and reality. It's a book. It's about fairies from the old world who hide tre- treasures in the new world, yada, yada, except that Byron Price actually did that, right? He devised these treasures, not detectable by Chris Turner and his metal detectors, <laughs> treasures that, uh, that really are apparently, or at least were, in 12 different places. Tell us more.
1: Yeah, Byron was such a crazy man uh, and and such an interesting mind. He was uh, way ahead of his time in, in publishing. And uh, he heard about this book that did really well in the UK in like 1980 called Masquerade. And uh, it, it was this book where uh, it kind of looked like a kid's book and you'd go through it and there would be clues, kind of like the I spy puzzles to figure out exactly where uh, this publisher buried a golden rabbit. And it was such a success in the UK that Byron kind of saw it and he said, well, let me let me up the stakes and do something better here in the United States. So he created this book called The Secret, a treasure hunt that was published in 1982. And inside his book are 12 paintings and 12 poems. And each poem goes with a specific painting. And if you can uh, figure those clues out, the visual clues in the painting and the clues from the poems, it'll lead you to the location of a buried key. He he made these little ceramic keys and put them in a ceramic case. And then he put the case inside a uh, one foot square plexiglass cube. And then he buried those on public land around the United States, 12 of them, a dozen of them, and buried them about three feet down. And um, it's such a fascinating puzzle. To date, only three of them have been found. There are still nine out there unaccounted for. Yeah, and,
2: and maybe not. I mean, we'll come to that. Yeah, um, sure. But just so people kind of get a, a sense, I'll just read one. This This is one of the ones... I think you and I don't think is probably there to be found, but uh, in the shadow of the gray giant, find the arm that extends over the slender path in summer. You'll often hear a whirring sound, cars abound, although the sign nearby speaks of Indies native, the natives still speak of him of hard word in three vols. Uh, take twice as many uh, t- take twice as many east steps as the hour or more from the middle of one branch of the V. Look down and see the simple roots of, in rhapsodic man's soil, or gaze north toward the Isle of B. So I mean, it it couldn't be any more simpler, right? <laughs> <laughs> so so I mean, it's just obvious where it is. Uh, but no, it might it might actually be in Battery Park, right? And the problem with that is that there's been a yeah. quite a fair amount of earth moving. It just took a lot longer to find this stuff. I think than Byron Price was guessing.
1: It, it, exactly right. He thought you know his his mind worked differently than most people, but he thought that his clues were easy enough to be solved in the first year that the book came out in 1982 and he did not realize how complicated he made them and one of the things that makes it so complicated is he wouldn't tell you what poem goes with which painting so it's you know (laughs) not only do you have to find the right painting but you also have to figure out how it connects to a poem um and uh yeah for instance you mentioned the one in battery park you read that poem and there's a line in there about Indies native and um of course now Hamilton has become very famous and uh there are a lot of visual clues about uh Hamilton around Battery Park because he himself was from the uh the West Indies right, right. um and uh the Isle of B some people think that that was uh, Broadway um and the rhapsodic man's soil they're they're talking are is he talking about Gershwin uh so you know it it's it's a very clever Clever puzzle, and it can lead you anywhere. And people get obsessed with this,
2: right? I think if Will Shorts were sitting here, and he has been on our show, he'd say it's too, it's not a clever puzzle because it's too hard. Uh, I mean, this, <laughs> this this book came out in 1982. Uh, in 2005, tragically, uh, Mr. Price dies in a car accident and takes all of this information, all the answers, with him. Uh, and yeah. but I mean, the fact that. It was 2005, means that 23 years had passed without people finding very many of these treasures. This is really hard. He did not make it easy enough, probably, for it to be the kind of game he wanted it to be.
1: Um, true, but I think what what the ultimate result of that is is it became his legacy. It's still incomplete. It's still searchable. It's still playable. And yes, Byron was the only one that knew for sure where each of these keys were buried. But the online message boards devoted to this, and there are several, have pretty much narrowed down the search to specific cities. So we, we essentially know roundabout where they are, but getting down to that one square foot where you have to dig is very tricky.
2: Right. And the fact that it doesn't, the metal detectors don't work. We, right, because it's all ceramic. Yeah, we asked glass. we asked Chris Turner about this. He said I would not have a chance, uh, and he, <laughs> he finds stuff for a living. So, and we should say there were at the beginning of this whole thing twelve thousand dollars worth of uh, jewels. I'm mm-hmm. I'm guessing those jewels have appreciated value, but um, so, but it's still the case, right? If you find one of these keys and bring it to the family, you will get you know one of these jewels or some of these jewels, one twelfth of the jewels
1: correct and you know i i did a documentary about this um, several years ago and i i've been all over the country searching for this these keys so people when they think they have a solution they'll reach out to me i get emails every week about the secret still to this day and they will be absolutely 100% convinced that they know where it's at and they want to be in touch with the family and it's it's like there's so many people that that have gotten to that point but then you know you say go dig you know prove it and then they, they, they don't get it. So you have to have the key in hand in order to submit your solve and, and get the gem. But yes, the family has the gems, there's diamonds, rubies, and you exchange the key that you find for one of these real real uh, gems.
2: All right. So uh, something like 41 years <laughs> have elapsed. Uh, yeah. And And so my guess is that this whole thing would have petered out if the only reason to do it was to get a gem. But it does seem – is it Hegel who says the quest is – some famous philosopher says, you know, it's really the quest. Uh, that mm-hmm. uh, and, and I'm assuming there's some real truth to that, that whatever camaraderie builds up, either among people who meet each other while looking for this or just, you know, a group of people, a father and son, whatever, people who do this do it and get something else out of it besides a ruby
1: exactly right you know if you were to find a key you join a very small list of of established uh puzzle solvers of you know it's it's kind of like getting the grandmaster ribbon in uh in chess you know your name is now a part of the history of this very unique book and I think that's what excites people more than the actual key and gem at this point.
2: You know, Price also intended this, as I understand it, to be mainly for teenagers, right? This is sort of a YA project. Right. Uh, and, and so, once again, these puzzles should be solvable. You shouldn't have to be Will Shorts to figure these things out. And do maybe people kind of overcomplicate it as they're searching for the ruby or diamond? I think that's very,
1: very true. I think we look at this as adults and see it through the lens of our experience. And we want to make it too complicated. But yes, Byron made these to be solved by teenagers. Um, So when I speak to when I've met the, the few people that have actually found one of these, they all tell me the same thing, which is keep it simple. You don't overly complicate the poems. Think of it as if you were 12 or 13 years old. And what what do these words mean to you? Where do they take your mind? So yes, keep it simple. That's the key.
2: So there are going to be, uh, James, nefarious people who think, I don't need to find the key. I need to find a key. <laughs> or perhaps I need to make a key that looks like the key. I mean, I assume people have done that, right?
1: It's been tried. Yeah, just like the, you know, Willy Wonka, you know, the the movie where somebody makes a golden ticket and tries to get in. People have tried to make fake keys, fake uh, casks, which are the the little treasure boxes that the keys are in. But Byron, for you know, saw that as a possibility too. So he made each key unique and each cask has a different part of it painted. And nobody knows, except for the artist who is still alive, uh, which cask uh, you know, would have that specific part of it painted. So you can't, there's no making it up, uh, but but people have tried, yes.
2: You know, reading about this, and I read an Atlas Obscura piece about it, and, and reading your stuff, one thing that struck me is, people wanna be part of something bigger than themselves. I mean, not everybody, but I think, you know, it's the reason people join movements and churches and all kinds of things. And this feels a little bit like that, and maybe the fact that it hasn't been solved in such an incredibly long time makes it a bigger thing in an odd way. And and it it, it does feel as though you, just a regular old person, um, are part of something that's on the verge of becoming legendary just because of the persistence of the mystery.
1: That that's that's absolutely true. You know, the the more time goes by the the more enticing the mystery actually becomes because it proves how difficult it really is to find and you know as time passes some of the clues no longer make sense because byron might have used a marker at a park in chicago in like milwaukee that referenced uh, trees and those trees are now you know uh, fallen over or dead or or have been renovated you know that part of the park so Um, it's, it gets increasingly more difficult every year. And that just makes it more, uh, of an exciting challenge to these people.
2: Um, the other thing to know, I guess, is that there are some places that you might not be entirely welcome just showing up and saying, I think there's a key right (laughs) right here, right inside your prize rose garden. I'm going to dig right now. So you have to sort of be careful. But I love the fact that in Golden Gate Park, you can sort of apply in advance and somebody will come out and you have a fixed amount of time to dig holes. And tell us a little bit more about that kind of thing.
1: Yes. Some cities such as San Francisco have embraced this story this this legend and if you reach out to the park system in San Francisco there's a lot of evidence that suggests that there may be a key in Golden Gate Park and uh you can reach out to the park system and they will um, allow you to uh they'll send a ranger with you and you can walk around the park wherever you want to dig and I believe you can dig up to three holes in a day And then you have to um, request another dig if you want to try again.
2: Right. I've spent quite a bit of time in Golden Gate Park. If you dig three holes there, you're going to find something, probably something you should not eat, drink, or smoke without having it checked very, very carefully. (laughs) You may not find (laughs) a cask with a key in it, but you'll find something. Well, James Renner is a journalist and author, uh, and he is one of the people who really has studied the whole Byron Price mystery. Thank you so much for talking to us today.
1: Yeah, anytime.
2: All right. We'll take a little break. We'll come back after this. We are back. We are so lucky to have Cat Pastra as our technical producer today, and pretty much all days. McCusker is the. You know, we need we need sort of a a, um, a fanfare, like not from the comic book Avengers, but from the old um, British TV show The Avengers. Ba-ba-da. Like right after you say McCusker. Ba-ba-da. Anyway, she used to be Carolyn McCusker, but we rebranded her. Anyway, she's the producer of this episode and a fine job she's done as well. It's an episode about searching. Uh, and so uh, we didn't have to search that far because he was born not too far from where I'm sitting right now. Walter Wick is a photo illustrator and picture puzzle designer known for the I Spy and Can You See What I See series. And uh, he's with, he grew up in Connecticut and uh, actually uh, for a long time was living in Hartford here in the... Uh, elaborately and fascinatingly renovated former firehouse, but uh, but no more. He's down in Florida, uh, but he's also with us right now. We should also say there's a Walter Wick, at, Wick exhibit at the New York and Britain Museum, uh, um, the New Britain Museum of Art. <laughs> it's at some museum that has new in the word, uh, and until September 3rd. All right, Walter Wick, I'll shut up and let you start talking, but... Um, You know, maybe for people who don't quite know because they just didn't have kids at the right age at the right time or something, uh, say a little bit about uh, I Spy uh, and Do You See What I See? These are kind of search and find picture books which are not a new idea, but your new idea was to create an actual physical world and photograph it. Um, Say a little bit more about that and why it seemed to make a difference
4: well well first of all thank you for having me on uh colin um yeah uh i uh, when i started the first i spy book in uh 1991 with writer gene marzolo um i uh, the market was already saturated with uh search and find books like where's waldo it was really huge it was ironically where's wally in um, <laughs> in english um, but uh, there was also a lot of spin-off books. Um there was um uh you know, like where's Wendy, where's Lisa, where's Elvis, where's Dan Quayle? You know, mm-hmm. so it was a little intimidating uh to to enter this uh you know, this field um at that time. But what I did bring to it was the photographic um uh, uh Uh, photographic illustration, which um, was really turned out to be very, very refreshing. And I think significant for the uh, for the kids uh, playing this game.
2: Yeah. And I I think um, the fact that it's a real physical space means that Things in that space, and it's hard to describe, but it's a physical space. It's a photograph of a physical space that has lots of little things in it uh, that are interacting and interlocked in different ways. Uh, and it, it means that the things that the ch- kid is looking at either have to um, obey the laws of physics and reality or have to defy them in some kind of trompe loy way, right? That there's, there's. I think some of the intrigue here is this isn't just a picture somebody painted and painted Waldo into a corner of it. This is a thing that exists somewhere and it has a certain tinge of reality.
4: You just you just zero right in on it because, you know, when I did the first I Spy book, um, uh, you know, there was simple uh, still lifes, but there were complex still lifes. But uh, I remember showing it to... Um, a parent um, with with their little child who was four years old, and it was the very first picture in the very first ice by a book. The book hadn't even come out in the stores yet, and they had come by to visit my studio, and uh, I had it was a picture of um, you know kindergarten blocks with uh, stacked up in various uh, toys that were decorating the the towers of blocks and the child said how did you get that little two-inch doll to stand up <laughs> you know so so they're they're trying to and this is a kid who can't yet read yeah so they're trying to reconcile what's happening in the picture they they seem to have an intuitive grasp of the fact that um these pictures are to be based in reality and most be. um you know follow the laws of physics even though they haven't even heard the word physics
2: you know vocabulary <laughs> right so, so they but they'll ask you questions like that they'll say why is that thing floating in the air did you just throw it up and take a picture of it while it was floating? i mean they there's exactly a certain it. kind of kid who wants to know the answers to all of that right
4: that's exactly right and so that made me want to just do even more um kind of preposterous kinds of things floating through the <laughs> air in some cases but in one instance, um, it was for "I Spy" school days. I created a machine made out of blocks and toys. So, in addition to finding the um, hidden objects, um, you know, they had an additional puzzle of trying to figure out how this machine works. So, I have a I have the copy of School Days. I want to read Jean Marzolo's rhyme. I spy a marble, a clothespin clamp fun two keys and a ruler ramp three helmets a hand a hammer a heart a checker a chair and a chalkboard chart so you know the 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 setup is of these kindergarten blocks with dominoes set up to be knocked over and ramps and pulleys and so on and the kids have to figure out find all the objects but but jeans rhyme actually engages them in the working parts of the machine. So, after they find all the things, they then, on their own, figure out how the machine works.
2: So, Walter, I have a sense that you were kind of creating books for the kid you were. Uh, You were not an avid reader as a kid, but you were probably a kid who would have reacted very powerfully uh, to the kind of visual environment you've created here.
4: Absolutely. I've always felt that you know the kind of um, kind of play I had during the um, in in my youth. You know, just using hand me down toys and playing for hours and hours on the floor of our our house. There was no room in the house that was off limits to this kind of play. Um, I felt that as I became a studio photographer, a still life photographer, that I never really. It was a, just a continuum from. That kind of activity to the kind of activity I do in the studio and when the opportunity to do the children's book came along uh, it, it even uh, amplified that that sensation further that feeling that those memories further for me
2: you know you've gone from these um, photographs uh, and these books which are very 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 busy in terms of just the amount of visual content that's in any particular frame to something else where it's a ray of light or a drop of water. And I'm wondering if that's a different kind of searching. And in, in other words, if I'm looking at a big crowded Walter Wick, you know, thingscape, <laughs> I'm just looking at all kinds of things and trying to figure out how they fit in the clue. All right, then screw them. I'm, they don't, they're not important. Uh, let me find the stuff that's really important. And I'm looking, 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 all that stuff. But there's a different kind of looking, looking at something that's rather pure and maybe doesn't seem to have a lot of details until you look until you search it for a different kind of detail I'm assuming that's a bit of what's going on with these other projects.
4: It is it, I, I assume that since uh you know if kids are going to ask why is that uh, toy balancing or how did you get those things to flow through the air or how does this machine really work they could ask that about physical phenomena you know like um, you know why is why why does white light? produce colors when it goes through a prism. And by photographing this phenomenon rather than to using a, a diagram in a book, um, a textbook which, you know, like think of, for example, the uh, Pink Floyd album cover of, you know, um, dark side of the moon as a graphic prism and and there's a drawing of white light coming in the drawing of, you know, the rainbow colors on the other side but when you actually photograph it it kind of brings you into that real phenomenon of of what's happening and that sense of wonder really
2: yeah so i think i, yeah, I think there's a sense almost, yeah go ahead go ahead
4: create this sort of majesty with something as simple as a soap
2: bubble right it's a different kind of looking it's a different kind yeah, of searching uh yeah. And I think that's it's also very important in its way. Walter Wick, I'm out of time, but it's great talking to you again. Walter Wick is a photo illustrator and picture puzzle designer known for the I Spy and Can You See What I See series. Thanks for listening today. Don't need anything that you dig up in Golden Gate Park. That's just practical advice. And we will be back tomorrow.